Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Now, among all of the evolutionary systems out there, a few have become rather famous. Sickle cell anemia, Lenski's long-term E. coli experiment, and anyone who's ever opened an evolutionary textbook will have heard of the highly toxic rough-skinned newts of North America and the extraordinary garter snakes that eat them. And today we're going to get very familiar with that last example, because a new paper in Heredity has revealed something incredibly important. This textbook evolutionary system is sex-linked. That's right, the resistance is female. The paper is called Sex Linkage of the Skeletal Muscle Sodium Channel Gene, SCN4A, explains apparent deviations from Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium of texadotoxin-resistant alleles in garter snakes. And I'll let the authors explain what that means in all its glorious detail. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Can you please both introduce yourselves? Uh, yes, yeah, so my name is Carrie Gendro. I'm a third-year PhD candidate at Virginia Tech right now, um, working in the lab of Joel McLaughlin. Uh, my name is Mike Haig. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Montana, uh, but I did my PhD at the University of Virginia and worked on this predator-prey system where uh, Carrie and I collaborated. Well, thank you very much for joining me to talk about this paper. It kind of centers upon a pretty iconic evolutionary system. In fact, it's kind of a literal textbook example of evolution. But uh, maybe everybody hasn't read those textbooks, so I wonder if you could just set the scene for us and tell us about the newts and snakes that your paper focuses on and why they're so interesting. Sure. So this work is a culmination of many studies that have been ongoing since the 1960s, really. Um, And most of it was led by um, two researchers. Uh, It's actually father and son, Edmund Brody Jr. and Edmund Brody III. So Edmund Brody Jr. started this work in the 1960s, studying these newts in the Western United States. And they have a really high level of a really potent neurotoxin on their skin. So one of the first studies that he published was looking at how different animals respond to this toxin. So he actually injected a bunch of different animals with the toxin, so mice and rodents and even a lynx. Um, And he found that most animals actually were killed within minutes from the toxin, but all snakes that he tested had some level of resistance. Um, And then one species of snake in particular, um, Thymnophis sertalis, which are garter snakes, had really high levels of resistance. Some of them weren't affected at all by the toxin. And they've been observed consuming these newts, so it looks like they have evolved like a really high level of resistance to the toxin, which is fascinating. And so he carried on with this work, um, and especially in the 1990s, him and his son worked together to look at this coevolution between high toxicity in the newts and levels of resistance in the snakes. Um, and so they found a really striking pattern of coevolution occurring where newts had really high levels of toxin, the snakes were highly resistant, and newts that had less toxin were coinciding with snakes that also had less resistance. 
And then in the 2000s, some other researchers joined in on this project and sequencing technology was really picking up at that time. And they were able to link genotype to phenotype, which is kind of rare and impressive. So they what they found was the mutations in one specific gene, which is a voltage-gated sodium channel gene. Uh, this is um, produces a, a protein that the toxin targets. So mutations um, in this gene were allowing the snakes to be resistant. They prevented the toxin from binding and gave the snakes this phenotype. So even more recently, Mike came in. And so Mike, actually, I don't know if you want to jump in here and, and talk about like your addition to this with population genetics. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm broadly really interested in co-evolution between newts and garter snakes. And one really interesting pattern that Kerry mentioned is if you look across the landscape where these species co-occur in Western North America, in California, Oregon, and Washington, you tend to find newts that have low levels of the toxin, tetrodotoxin, uh, tend to co-occur with snakes that have low levels of resistance. Then the opposite is true for really toxic newt populations. So in populations where newts are extremely toxic, where they have high levels of this toxin, you find really resistant snake populations. So there's all this geographic variation in levels of newt toxins and snake resistance. And I'm, I'm sort of broadly interested in what drives that variation. So one of the things I did was look at variation in the alleles that confer resistance to garter snakes in this voltage-gated sodium channel that's expressed in muscle tissue. So as Terry mentioned, there are these specific mutations in the pore of the channel that disrupt the binding action of tetrodotoxin and confer really extreme levels of resistance to garter snakes and their skeletal muscle tissue. So I looked across the range where these species co-occur and just looked at variation in these mutations, which populations of snakes have these TTX-resistant mutations, tetrodotoxin-resistant mutations, and which populations don't have these mutations. And the sort of the hypothesis was here, in populations of snakes where we see really high levels of phenotypic resistance, we would expect the presence of these TTX-resistant mutations. So again, linking phenotype to genotype. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, no, totally. Great. Uh, yeah, so that was kind of a chunk of my dissertation. And one of the weird results that came out of that project, when I went in and looked at the variation in those alleles, uh, you tended to find in populations of snakes that had high levels of phenotypic resistance that co-occur with toxic newts, we found a high frequency of these TTX-resistant alleles in the voltage-gated sodium channel in muscle tissue. That kind of supported our prediction that genotype, you know, supports the phenotypic variation we see across the landscape. But one really weird pattern was the frequency of these alleles were all out of Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. So essentially, the frequency of these alleles were out of the sort of the normal proportions that we would expect uh, assuming that there's nothing really going on, like no natural selection, sufficiently large population sizes. And the frequency was really unexpectedly extremely out of Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. Even if you sort of assumed that these populations were under selection due to this arms race with toxic newts, the populations were really unexpectedly homozygous. So we tended to find a deficiency of heterozygous snakes. And this is because I was assuming that the Males and female snakes each got two copies of the gene that underlies this protein, SCN4A. So I assumed this gene was located on the autosome in the snakes, and both females and males had two copies of the gene, one from mom and one from dad. And that turns out to be wrong, as <laughs> Carrie showed pretty elegantly in part of her dissertation. I'll let her talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So I was working on a larger project where I was looking at the overall evolutionary rates of these genes involved in resistance. Um, and I was doing that by comparing genome sequences of different lizards and snakes. And 
we received a, an early version of a genome sequence for a rattlesnake. And this was from our collaborators at Texas, Todd Casto and his grad student, Drew Shield. And they assembled this genome to the chromosome level. Um, so it was possible for us to look at the locations of the sodium channel genes on the chromosomes of the snake. One thing that really popped out to us was that the main sodium channel involved in the resistance to tetrodotoxin is on the Z sex chromosome in the snakes. That was striking to us, and it made us think that maybe we um, needed to reevaluate the this earlier work that had been done. Um, and so we had some emails going back and forth between us and, and Mike and his collaborators, and we were talking at a conference and decided to put all this information together into one paper. So to go back and reanalyze um, the previous data sets that Mike had worked with to try to see um, if we could find first evidence that this gene was also sex-linked in the garter snakes, and then what implications that had for the evolutionary dynamics of tetrodotoxin resistance. I, I mean, it's a really fantastic overview and pretty much answered several of my questions much more succinctly than I had planned. So um, I guess you were really interested in finding out about uh, sex linkage and whether or not it was having a role in this. So how did you go about testing that? So we knew that this gene involved in tetrodotoxin resistance was sex linked in rattlesnakes, but we wanted to make sure first that it was sex linked in the garter snakes as well. And we wanted to test and see if there was one copy maintained in the females or two copies. So we did that using qPCR and we designed primers that would bind to the sodium channel gene that we were interested in. And just to clarify, sex linkage in snakes, it's a little bit different than the sex linkage that most of us are used to. So in mammals, there's an XY system, which means the females have two uh, identical X chromosomes and males have an X and a Y chromosome, which are morphologically distinct and have different genetic content. In snakes, they actually have a ZW system. So that means that the males have two identical chromosomes, which are Z and Z, and the females have two different chromosomes, Z and W. So the first thing that we did was design those primers and go back and sex all of the snakes that had been used in the population genetics study. And what we found was that the females indeed had half the copy number. So they only had one copy of each of these genes and the males were maintained too. Yeah. Um, where do we go from here? <laughs> do you want me to clarify? Any of that? No. So, I mean, I think that's, that's great. So I guess it's a really good overview of the system and what you did and some of what you found. So what do you think is the sort of key message, the key finding from this study? So the reason why the sex linkage of these genes is significant is that sex-linked genes are inherited differently than autosomal genes. So being sex-linked has a lot of implications for evolutionary dynamics. For one thing, sex-linked genes tend to evolve faster, and there's a number of hypotheses surrounding why that is. So it could be because of increased mutation rates on sex chromosomes. It also could be because selection pressures are different. So females only having one copy means that one copy is always going to be expressed and always going to be exposed to selective pressures. So this can increase the efficiency of purifying selection, and it can also increase the efficiency of positive selection. What that might mean is that the, there could be stronger selective pressure on the females versus the males because they're only expressing one copy. Um, so I don't know, Mike, if you want to go into into your part now with Hardy Weinberg? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I think it, it emphasizes this really important point that when you're sort of inferring, trying to infer the process of adaptation, it's important to know 
about the underlying genetic basis of the trait, right? So the fact that females have one copy of this gene and males have two sort of alters our predictions about how this trait might evolve in response to selection from toxic newts. So one of the things that I think is really cool from Carrie's work is if you go back to look at the allele frequencies that I looked at in my project and you account for females only having one copy of this gene, it turns out most of the populations that we looked at, those populations that have escalated levels of resistance and populations that have lower levels of resistance, they're all pretty much in Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium when you account for the fact that females only have one copy of this gene, except for a couple populations in a part of the range where we know newts are extremely toxic and snakes are extremely resistant to the toxin. So this is in kind of the Bay Area in California. And when you account for um, the fact that females only have one copy of this gene, we see this interesting pattern where females tend to have a higher frequency of the really resistant mutations and males have a lower frequency of the really resistant mutations. So they tend to have lower ancestral levels of resistance. So this difference between males and females, I think, is really interesting in the context of how we think about the ecology um, and sort of natural history of this interaction between newts and snakes. So females tend to be bigger and all sort of anecdotal observations of these females eating toxic newts we, we never see males eating these toxic newts, and it's thought that generally these males are sort of too small to eat these big toxic newts, whereas females can. So it sort of suggests that females might be under selection to evolve increased resistance to the toxin in the newts because they're eating the newts, uh, and males might not be favored. They might be disfavored to have these resistant mutations, uh, which is why we tend to find a lower frequency of the resistant mutations in the males. And in fact, another part of my dissertation, we found that these mutations in the, in the sodium channel that confer increased resistance, they occur in a really important part of the channel that's really important for sort of the normal baseline functioning of these voltage-gated sodium channels in muscle tissue, right? Mm -hmm. They're really important for propagating action potentials. Uh, and it turns out if you have these TTX-resistant mutations, you're a really resistant snake, your sodium channels are kind of screwed up <laughs> and they don't work as well and your muscle tissue doesn't work as well. So we think there's potentially a cost to this resistance. And the males might be favored to have low levels of resistance due to that cost. They can't eat the toxic newts, whereas the females uh, might be favored to have these mutations because they can eat these really toxic newts. So sort of changes how we think about uh, selection on males versus females. Obviously, that needs a lot more experimentation in the field to sort of tease that out. But um, sort of these, these uh, trends that we see in some of these resistant populations and differences between males and females is sort of suggestive of that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. 
Mm, that's that's fascinating and i guess it also kind of raises kind of a big question as well because i mentioned earlier that this is kind of a textbook evolution example yeah but another thing as well is that sex linkage often seems to be fairly overlooked so how do you think this kind of study might impact the way that we think about evolutionary biology more generally so I think it's important to consider genetic architecture in our evolutionary models. It, it usually is ignored. And now that we're, we have an increasing amount of sequence data available and techniques available to test for this, it's something that we should be considering. It, yeah, because it can significantly affect the dynamics of evolution, when it can happen and how it can persist. Yeah, so I think uh, just to kind of dovetail off that, like the fact that we see these mutations on sex chromosomes might sort of explain sort of the broader evolutionary processes that we see. So there's actually a number of garter snakes that have evolved resistance to tetrodotoxin convergently, and they have very similar mutations in the same gene. There's three different garter snake species that evolved increased resistance through mutations in this gene. And one of the potential explanations for that, based on Carrie's work, is if this is a sex-linked gene, maybe because it's sex-linked, we expect higher rates of mutation because sex-linked genes have higher rates of mutation. And that can explain why all these different species of garter snake have been able to sort of convergently evolve these resistant mutations over a pretty short evolutionary time period. Mm, definitely some good things for people to think about. And I guess I just have one final question to ask, and it's related to your system, but it's also slightly different. And that's that I personally feel that coming onto a sort of study system like this, I might feel a bit intimidated given how well known it is. <laughs> so I'm curious as to how you both ended up working on the system and what it's like sort of contributing to such a famous sort of organism and its biology. Uh, well, I read about this system while I was doing my master's um, and was fascinated by it. And I remember my first evolution conference, I, I met Butch Brody for the first time, and I was wow. a bit starstruck, to be honest. <laughs> I think I would be too. <laughs> um, but I ended up at Virginia Tech, and I ended up working with Joel, and it's it's been really exciting, especially finding out about sex linkage. At first, I hesitated a little bit to get into this system because I thought it was so well-defined and well-known, but to find out this huge piece of information that had been missing before, the the fact that the major gene involved in tetrodotoxin resistance was sex-linked was exciting to me and, and showed me that there was still an opening um, in the system, like a way that I could contribute more. Yeah, I think like Carrie, I was kind of starstruck when I met the father and son Brody duo. Uh, you know, you grew up reading about these stories in textbooks in middle school and high school, and it's just such an iconic system. So it's really, it's humbling to be able to work on this and contribute in a way. And there's such a strong community of researchers that work on tetrodotoxin and newts and garter snakes. It's been really fun to collaborate with folks like Carrie. And yeah, just to be able to contribute to a system that's in textbooks is really, it's pretty humbling and exciting. So I'm really grateful for being able to work on it with Carrie and with the Brodies and, and Joel. It's been a fun project. Yeah, for sure. I think I first heard about it when I was in high school and I've heard about it at every step of my education. And <laughs> yeah, it must be fantastic to be able to contribute something so important to such a famous system. And thank you both as well for taking the time to share this with us. And I guess the last thing that I had to ask really is just if you could remind us of the title of your paper and also just mention anybody else who deserves recognition in this work. Sure. Um, so we should mention Chris Feldman, too, who is another author on the paper. And Chris collected all of the samples or the majority of the samples that were used. I'm not sure, Mike, if you collected some. Yeah, it was about 50-50. I collected about half of them, too. But yeah, Chris is a great, 
great field biologists. Yeah. Um, and we're having some discussions with Chris about following up on this too, by increasing our sample size and looking a little bit into migration as well. So yeah, that's something we're going to follow up on. As for the title, it's Sex Linkage of the Skeletal Muscle Sodium Channel Gene, SCN4A, Explains Apparent Deviations from Hardy-Weinberg Equilibrium up to Trototoxin-Resistant Alleles in Garter Snakes, Damnophis sertalis. Perfect. <laughs> but yeah, so thank you very much both for joining me and sharing this work. I really hope that people will now go and read your paper because it is fascinating. And yeah, it does just contribute a lot to our thinking of evolution and how it could apply to quite a number of systems. No, thank you. This was, this was very fun. Yeah, thanks so much. And Mike, thank you for being so eloquent. No, no worries. <laughs> Happy to contribute. Not- <laughs> no, you did great, Carrie. You did great. Thanks to Carrie and Mike. I know we've said it a lot in this episode already, but this really is a foundational system in evolutionary biology, and sex linkage is often overlooked, so please read this paper. As always, you can find it on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. And before we finish, we're going to hear from Kat Arney over at the Genetics Unzip podcast, the latest episode of which has a pretty big Heredity connection. Let's find out what it is. the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we're off on our virtual travels, finding out about the highs and lows of fieldwork. From chasing butterflies up mountains to artificially inseminating kakapos with the help of drones and putting angry birds in paper bags until they poop, we talk to the researchers studying genetics and evolution in action. Our stay-at-home roving reporter Georgia Mills caught up with four intrepid explorers who've been off on their travels in locations as exotic as New Zealand, Lanzarote and the Lake District to hear more about their work and what they learned out in the field. All of these researchers were supported by Heredity Fieldwork Grants administered through the Genetic Society. So if you're interested in how to apply, head over to the Grants section of the Genetic Society website. That's genetics.org.uk. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Heredity Fieldwork Grants are amazing. And if you're feeling inspired after listening to that episode, you can find out how to apply for one on the Genetics Society website. That's geneticsociety.org.uk forward slash grants. But that's us for today. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on all good podcast platforms. And you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 